Hi, I'm Jessie Draper. I am first and foremost a mom, a boy mom to be exact, a boy mom who invests in female-founded companies. Yep, the joke's on me. I'm the founder of Halogen Ventures, a former entrepreneur and creator of an Emmy-nominated television series on technology. My mission is to support women and help raise awareness about the biggest issues facing society, women, and families today, starting with solving childcare. From celebrity guests to founders and politicians, everyone came from a family somewhere. And I want to hear from you, the families of America, on how we can make change because I can't do this alone. Let's get started. We have monumental work to do. Mommy, mommy, mommy. Emily Oster is a professor of economics at Brown University and the New York Times bestselling author of Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and The Family Firm. Oster's academic work focuses on health economics and statistical methods. Oster's books analyze the data behind choices in pregnancy and parenting. Oster writes a newsletter called Parent Data on data, pregnancy, child rearing, and whatever else is on the minds of parents. Oster lives in Providence, Rhode Island, with her husband, also an economist, and two children. She's a major player in the childcare landscape, and we're grateful for the work she's doing and how she roots everything in real data. Well, Emily, I cannot believe I have you here. First of all, I'm so excited. I am such a fan, which I've already like fangirled out on her, you guys, before the the interview. So I'm now we're starting, and she's already terrified of me. But okay, I am such a fan of this woman. She's doing such great work in childcare and parenting and beyond. And we need to like multiply her by a million because then the world's problems would be solved because she bases it all in data. So. Emily, I think we'll start with our, our typical kind of first question is mom win of the week. For me, I planned a play date, which is a really big deal. And I'd also just, while I bring this up, I'd also just like to announce to moms everywhere that please don't text me Monday morning to, to like plan a play date. I would prefer to do that Sunday evening because Monday morning I'm having a heart attack um, with all the kid things going on. But I planned a play date and that was huge. So what was your mom win of the week? Uh, my younger kid is supposed to practice the piano and he doesn't like to do it. And it's become a bit of a source of conflict, but we came up with a new system where if he does a good job on the song, he can bring a toy from the basement up until his room and keep it there for a week. I don't know why this is a big deal for him because he's always allowed to do that, but it's like become this thing and he chooses the toys and now it goes much better. Although this morning he brought like an enormous bean bag and I had to like drag it through my house. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's like a win. I win. love this. Wait, so also I have a lot of questions about like what kind of stuffed animals and toys are in the basement. It's a playroom. So oh, it's, it's just a like a lot of stuff that the kids are too old for that yes. they won't get rid of. Like my kids are seven and 11. So it's like, old toys for a pretend kitchen so it'll be like old pretend kitchen pots for a two-year-old and then we're like should we get rid of this and they're like no i love that so much i play with it all the time isn't it funny how these bribes happen you're like i don't know how this became a thing but like now we bring a toy up and we're there yeah i love it that's it that's a huge win honestly practicing right. the piano Practicing anything is a huge win. Doing anything. Yes. And I'm really impressed that your kids are playing the piano, so that's great. Okay, so, you know, now we like to just kind of cover some fun parent news of the day. 
And, you know, I was speaking with one of my founders of, they run this childcare company called Brella, and it's sort of like a flexible uh, childcare facility kind of between a daycare and an in-home childcare or something. And they were talking about how they pay their educators a little more. And I was saying, um, why do you feel the need to pay more? And they said, Jesse, educators are not being paid enough. And it's like a major, major issue. And they're dropping out left and right. And so, you know, there was this article I just read in Vox by Rachel Cohen. And it said, despite the long wait list, nearly 90,000 fewer people are working in the childcare industry today compared to February 2020. Many childcare centers say they're losing workers because it's become impossible to compete with the rising wages and benefits offered by large corporations like Amazon, Target, Starbucks, and McDonald's. So I'd love to hear kind of what you think about that and what are some solutions we could push people towards. And I know you love that this is based in data. And so if you have any fun data to share, we're all ears. Yeah, so I actually think there there's a sort of very clear economic answer to what is going on, which is basically inherent in that article, which is that the set of people who work in childcare uh, is a group where uh, there are a lot of different jobs which um, use the same skill set, not exactly the same skill set, but the sort of roughly same sort of skill set, same education level. And many of those jobs have just gotten like much better paid, right? So during this sort of period of kind of labor, like the labor force has has gotten smaller. And so there are fewer workers for the same number of jobs. And so like those jobs are just really well paid. And the salaries of childcare workers have not gone up as much over time. So there's kind of one thing, which is just if we pay people more, then more of them would want that job because maybe you prefer to work with kids than work at Amazon, but not for, you know, $4 an hour or less um, is kind of about right. Then I think we have to back up and ask, well, why aren't we paying people enough? And I think there the issue is, you know, if you run a childcare center, you, uh, you collect money from parents and you have to pay your employees. And if you want to pay your employees more, you need to charge more money to families. Many people who run childcare centers don't want to do that because they know that this is such an enormous expense for many families. And they have developed these relationships and they don't, they don't want to tell people, well, you can't come here because you can't pay. And so they don't want to raise those rates, but then it's hard to raise the wages. And I think once you see it like that, in some ways, there's a clear policy solution. We need people to be able to pay more for this. Well, that's the kind of thing that childcare subsidies would help with. You know, that's the kind of thing where basically we need to be providing more scaffolding to families so they can afford this kind of childcare. Uh, so then, therefore, some of that extra money can be passed on to the people who work there, so we can have you know more stable employment. And you know, I don't. There's probably no political will, but I think ultimately that some kind of childcare subsidies is a solution we'd point to. Yeah, you know, subsidies is coming up a lot on this podcast and. It's like, do you think that's the only solution? And also tell us more <laughs> about subsidies. I mean, so, so if you think about what would you mean by subsidies, um, I think what you would, there's like two ways that can operate. So one way is, is individual parent family subsidies. So say, you know, the same way we provide um, housing subsidies or um, even food subsidies, we could provide childcare subsidies for, for families. Um, and that's pretty straightforward. It's a kind of social safety net we don't necessarily provide that much of in the US, but we could. The other kind of subsidy you could provide would be subsidies to childcare centers, right? You could say, like, rather than giving people money they can spend at the childcare centers, we're going to, you know, try to support the existence of childcare centers with 
subsidies that are sort of directly there. And I think either of those are they probably have sort of similar fiscal implications, similar budgetary implications. And so sort of either either way you could do it. It's an interesting question. Is it the only solution? Um, I mean, probably not. I'm sure more creative people than I have other solutions. I think the basic underlying problem that you can't hire people for jobs where they can get another job that pays better, that's like a pretty basic problem. So it isn't totally clear, like, we're not going to tell people they have to take a lower paying job to work in a childcare center. So it, once you acknowledge that underlying thing, I'm not sure there's much of an answer other than pay people more. And to pay people more, you need money. Yeah, and then you know you were saying how some of the facilities may uh, or childcare facilities may just not want to charge parents more, um, and maybe it is something that we can kind of like back up with data across the country where we just say, hey, here are the typical rates you should be paying your educators, so that we all are aligned. And I know there are some places that do that, but I do think that that is part of it. I mean, we're invested in this company called WeCare, and they have fifty-five thousand vetted in-home childcare facilities, and I could see any of those childcare providers, you know, not wanting to raise their rates. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess the other thing maybe is that there's a, the supply of, of providers is somewhat limited. And I think there, there are a lot of regulations around, you know, who can do this. And some of those are undoubtedly really good. Right. And some of those are probably too much. Um, And if you sort of thought about particularly in home childcare, where uh, where it tends to be very heavily regulated for reasons that are probably not always good. Yeah, that is an opportunity to you know increase supply, but that would require a regulatory change. Yes, we we need a lot of regulatory changes. I think um, it is think true. That is we really certain. do. We need to rewrite the constitution for women. That's right. what I keep saying. Okay, so let tell me a little about just your personal childcare. How do you make this work at home? So, um, so my kids are a little bigger. So my kids are seven and 11. Um, and so they go to school <laughs> during the day, so nice. uh, most, most days, not today, Zoom <laughs> Kapoor, uh, but most days. Um, and we also have a nanny, uh, who does a bunch of support stuff for us around the house and takes care of the kids when they are not at school, like today. And then how does that differ from how you grew up? So I grew up, um, with, like going to daycare, actually in-home daycare from like, I think two weeks old. Um, My mom did not have great maternity leave. Um, And so I had then an in-home daycare and then, and then uh, like a regular daycare. Um, And we were very lucky because my grandmother lived like two blocks away from us. And so there was a lot of uh, grandmother, there was a lot of grandmother time. There was a lot of grandmother, that's good. Which was amazing. It's all about the village. I feel like I, I feel like that's a really important part of how people do make it work. So you have had just, you're an incredible professor. You do a lot of great work around childcare and parenting. And, um, you, you know, I was telling you this before I, people always say, you know, like, Oh, I'm having my first kid. What books should I read? Or, you know, um, I'm trying to figure it all out. And your book, Expecting Better, is the only book I recommend to everyone. Because when I read it, I was like, finally, someone is actually pointing out, like, you know, my husband was such a stickler. He's like, you can't have coffee. And he's not even here to defend himself, which is great. So he's like, you can't even have, he's like, you can't have coffee. You can't have wine. You know, you can't have like cold cuts. And um, 
I was so frustrated by it. I'm like, I, sometimes I want a cup of coffee or whatever. And you rooted all of this in actual data. And really, you hooked me with the wine data, like the mm, wine. Okay. So tell me about that study, because that was so fascinating to me. So you can drink wine while you are a pregnant bit. a little bit. Don't go crazy and no. don't judge me for saying that's yeah. the reason this book really hooked me. But um, then, I was, then I was hooked. Yeah. So, so this is an example of a, a time when, you know, I spent a lot of time in the book going through like what we see in the data. And it's pretty clear in the case of alcohol, that drinking a lot of alcohol during pregnancy, binge drinking is dangerous and has, you know, negative implications. We also have an enormous literature from many other places, mostly not from the U.S., um, which looks at, you know, child outcomes for kids whose mothers drink a little bit during pregnancy, you know, like, a couple of glasses of wine a week, like a, you know, a sort of small amount. And there you just do not see any evidence of worse outcomes for kids whose moms drink uh, lightly during pregnancy. And there's a lot of data there. There's like a lot of very large studies, as you would imagine, because this kind of behavior is much, much more common outside uh, of the U.S. So, you know, what I do in the book is I sort of try to dive into those and I try to help people understand, you know, why is this study of like, you know, 10,000 people in Denmark in which they like, you know, the kind of there's the variation seem, in drinking seems to be sort of fairly random. Why is that better than like the one study in the U.S. where the people who drank alcohol also used cocaine? And like that is like not as good a that well, is not a good as good a study. That was so fascinating to me where you were like, yeah. well, it's actually not as big a deal if you do have like one glass of wine every once in a while because the only study they have done wasn't it like 70% or something of the people? Yeah, like it, was a, it was a selected, cocaine? it was an unusual sample. And <laughs> it was a sample of people who had a lot of other substance abuse problems as well. And that's the only study we had. Now, are there I mean, we, Yeah. No. I mean, it's not, you know, <laughs> no. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, obviously, I got hooked by the wine, as many moms would, I'm sure, because we all we all love the wine, I think. But I, you do so much more deep diving. You know, I was just listening to your podcast where you read your incredible newsletter on what type of school is best for your child. And what, um, can you tell us a little about that? You were saying Montessori had slight, like, their test scores were slightly better, but really, does, does it matter what kind of school your kid goes to? Yeah. Yeah. So in, in one of the things I spend a lot of time on, particularly when I talk about this sort of early parent, like the parenting piece rather than the pregnancy piece is this idea that, that when we are making a lot of these choices, like preschool, uh, it, it is really important to step back and say like, what am I trying to accomplish? Because people ask like, is Montessori school better? And I think the question I would ask back to them, which is really what I'm asking in the newsletter is like, well, for what? Like, what are you trying to accomplish here? And it is true in the data that there's a set of things you're teaching kids in Montessori school. It focuses on sort of independent, um, self-directed activities. There's more emphasis on letters and phonics than there would be in some other kinds of schools. And so in a sense, when kids come out of there, I think that you know they tend to be better at the things you focused on. But is that what you're trying to accomplish? If it is, this might be a good fit. But then other people would say, well, I really want my kid to just like really be like good at playing in the dirt. Like, I want them to, like, be outside. Like, that's, I want them to get to know nature. I want that, like, that's really what I want to be accomplishing. I don't care if they get into kindergarten. They don't know any of their letters. And, you know, that's also completely fine. Don't go to Montessori school then. You know, you want to be going to a Waldorf school or some kind of, you know, forest playground school or whatever it is. And so really in so many of these parenting spaces, 
we are asking the question, is blah, blah, blah better? And the answer is like, for whom? Like for you? I don't know. What are you trying to accomplish? And that's, and that's really a lot of what I try to do in my writing is help people think about step, stepping back and saying, what am I trying to accomplish? Okay, how can the data help me to kind of move forward on the thing I want to do, recognizing like we're not all trying to achieve the same thing. Now, you know, in terms of childcare, like the childcare landscape, I think a lot about that zero to six-year-old, kind of five-year-old, I guess, um, and that and preschool, and not everyone can afford to go to a private preschool. Most people can't. You know, Bright Horizons in California ranges from like thirty to forty thousand dollars a year, which is crazy. Um, and so, a lot of kids actually don't go to preliminary school before kindergarten, and they can go to public school. Is there data? Do you have any data on like is that you know? I'd imagine you are kind of put ahead if you do go to preschool versus the children who went straight to kindergarten. So, literature is a little complicated. Um, so, you know, we have some studies of uh, of sort of like pre-K programs. Um, so, for example, there's like a large study of these in Boston. Um, and what you find there is kind of interesting. So, so kids who, who go to sort of a high quality pre-K program, particularly one that spends time on letters and and you know phonics and so on um, tend to enter kindergarten better prepared and they tend to do better on like tests in kindergarten but when you look at them when they're like eight they don't actually do any better so the sort of whatever that kind of was that gets sort of caught up by you know the second or third grade even maybe by the first grade so and i think that kind of makes sense like everybody you know by the second grade for the most part kids have kind of learned to read or are on the way to learning to read Maybe that's not actually universally true, but like the the treatment that you're giving them in school is really important for where they get to in second grade and where they started is probably less important. What's interesting about it is actually some of the positive effects seem to show up again, like in high school graduation. So we should have a lot of these sort of almost like what we call rebound effects where somehow there's an initial effect of a high quality pre-K, then it goes away and then it comes back. It seems to come back later. Um, people have different ideas about why that might be true in the data. That's so interesting, actually. That's really yeah. fascinating. So you spend your days digging into this data that's so needed, and you know, you're thinking about childcare and parenting and pregnancy, and you're digging into these numbers. Has this affected how you personally parent? Yeah. Uh, yes, it, it does. I mean, a lot of they the play stuff piano, that I know. So I know that. Yeah, the piano, right, the piano. Um, yeah, I mean, I think when I, it's, it's interesting. So I, when I wrote Expecting Better, which is the sort of pregnancy part of this, I did all of that research in the service of my own pregnancy. So in some sense, like, it's not like, it was just like, the book is just like, my, it's like my journey, you know, it's like my journey with, with like tables and figures. Um, <laughs> and, and so that was really, it, that was sort of really informed there. As my kids have gotten older and as the books have sort of been more about parenting, there are more cases where the sort of research that I was doing for the book then influenced how I was parenting or how I was thinking about how I was thinking about my parenting. So like an example with older kids is extracurriculars. So you can ask the question, like, what is the value of extracurriculars? And I think a lot of people and I would, to be fair, put myself in this camp, sort of think of extracurriculars as like a thing to achieve, like, you know, like my kid's going to be like a really great fencer and like then they're going to like go be a fencer at Penn or whatever is like, I don't know. Are your what, kids you, fencing? No, absolutely the piano? not. Are your okay, kids I'm fencing? Just, no, I'm just I don't even like, know where I would like, find Whoa. fencing. I don't even know where I'd find. No, no, no. I, I don't know where I'd find that. I'm just trying to pick something obscure because people sometimes pick these like obscure. They're like, my, my kid learns this obscure sport. 
like, you know, yeah, then it'll help them I get into school. It's going to help them get into right. school. And, you know, it turns out when you dig into the literature and extracurriculars and you get into the data, there are some real benefits to extracurriculars, but they are mostly about socio-emotional, like security and development that kids like to sort of have a different peer group. It's an opportunity to, for things to go well when, you know, things are not going well at school, um, an opportunity good at something else. And that like really reshapes almost how, how I've thought about what my kids should do if they do an extracurricular. Like I want them to do something that they care about and that they like, even if it is not the thing that like, like fencing, you know, they don't fence. They don't fence. Okay. They don't fence. They might That's start. Conclu conclusion of this story. <laughs> my children are not fenced. <laughs> Um, be a cool sport to be good at, you know, it's just yeah, like, it feels really handy. Like, I feel like I would fence. It, ha it feels handy. That's your, like it comes, it's going to come up like um, all those times you need like a really like, 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 oh, like bendy pointy sword. <laughs> I could use my great fencing ability today. Um, <laughs> so basically you, you collect all this data. How do I not F up my kids? I would say the F word, but I don't know if I say that on this podcast yet. Okay. Well, maybe you'll get there. Um, you know, uh, it's very difficult not to do, make a lot of parenting mistakes. So I think the first thing is like, you're probably making a lot of mistakes. Like we're all making Definitely. a lot of mistakes and just acknowledging like, okay, people make a lot of mistakes and that's okay. Um, you know, I, I guess the thing I always come back, back to is like, when we look at in the data, like sort of things like resilience against bullying. And this is maybe something where I sort of, I worry, this is like more the space I'm worried about because my kids are a little older, but sort of thinking about like, you know, your kid's going to go to school and like some bad stuff's going to happen because like when you let your kid out in the world, like sometimes people are jerks and like middle school is like a, like a cesspit of garbage and like you have to put your kid in it anyway. Um, but when, when researchers look at like what helps kids be resilient against things like bullying, it is like having a stable, safe home, like a place where they can, you know, feel like they are valued. And that's something I always come back to as like, like, what can I do to, to like, just be there for my kid and be the thing that they can come, the person they can come to and feel comfortable with and a place that they can feel supported. And I think almost everything else, any other individual decision, you know, do you feed them enough kale or too much goldfish or did you know, like almost everything else like that is just gravy. That's oh, I, and sleep. They sleep. should sleep a lot. Sleep. I'm like obsessed with sleep. I'm personally like, that's a passion of mine just in general, just for your personal, just for my personal, your, you, 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 enjoy sleeping. Just, you know, as, as moms, we just, you know, don't get any sleep. So yeah. personally, I'm very passionate about sleep. My kids are still at the age and I don't know if, I mean, I hear about these kids that sleep in and my kids are like, they think, 3 a.m. is 6 a.m., you know, and they're like getting up and playing. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> Go back to bed. So what's so interesting is as they get older, you actually don't want them to sleep in. So one of the main ways you can know if your older kid is not getting enough sleep is if they sleep in too much when you let them. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. No, my kids, I can't wait till they I mean, it doesn't sound like you have that problem. Not yet. Not yet. But then I'll, I'll be sure to wake them up after I've had my coffee um, when they're sleeping too late. So that's very helpful. Okay, so in terms of just like the the greater like we really want to solve childcare here and at least put solutions out there that we hope people will hear and start working towards. And um, you know what what's kind of blown your mind recently that you've learned in the greater childcare industry? It can be international, domestic, 
So, I mean, I think the the biggest, maybe this is the answer that's sort of both international and domestic. I mean, the most striking feature of our childcare landscape is the lack of it. Um, the fact that if you look at, you know, other, so I have a, a colleague or a, a sort of person who is also an economist, she doesn't work with me, but we were talking about her childcare situation and she had, her kid had been born in Italy. She spent the first year of life in Italy and she was like, you know, I thought childcare was expensive because it was like, you know, $200 a month for like the fanciest childcare. And like, we, I thought that was a lot. And then we moved to Cambridge and like, first of all, we could barely get into this childcare. Like we had to, you know, pull every string in the book and, you know, now it's, and it's, you know, $3,500 a month or what it was like some insane uh, number, which is, you know, what this costs. And so I think the combination of lack of access and cost is an enormous problem and very different here than it is in, you know, almost any other sort of comparable kind of developed country context, you know, Europe, Canada, and so on. That's so true. It's so it's, it's just broken. It's broken. It's broken. So, and it yeah. sounds like those are some things we can really focus around is just affordability and more options. And those are real things people can work towards. So we'd love to see people starting more of these companies that are solving these doing problems. More solving problems. That would be great. <laughs> and becoming educators. Uh, so, okay, you are married to an economist. So true. How I is am also that? How do you like argue? Do you argue in data? Like, do you back it up? I don't. So, um, I don't think we argue with data. We like we discuss with data. Like, if we're gonna like try to make some decision, there will be some like you know back and forth about like occasionally like what what does the evidence say about this? Um, oh my god, I love it. But it's not the kind, like, it's not really something we argue about. Like, the things we argue about are, like, like, I'm not very good at loading the dishwasher. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's uh, so, it's, he, like, I such mean, a problem. He's really ridiculous about it. I personally think he's really ridiculous about it. <laughs> My husband's really ridiculous, too. He'll, like, reload it. Yes. He'll take everything out and be like, it's like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Why like, are you doing that? It. It's just, it looks fine. Yeah. And it's still going to get clean. Well, I, I, t I feel you there. So I hear you are a terrible gardener. It's true. And I think yeah. you said, don't ask me about it. So I'm going to. So, so. here's the thing. There's, a, there's an item called um, white snake root. And it is like a poisonous weed. It's not just like a regular weed. It's like a weed which is like actually like if you ate it, I don't know if you would like die, but it's like really bad. And when we plant plants every single time, they are completely taken over by this white snake root leaf. Like, it's like, I have just enormous beds of this stuff. I'm like, you know, it's like Socrates with the hemlock, right? Like any, at any time, if you need some plant poison, like my garden is just like, the just white snake root like things. sees me trying to plant some kale and it just hops in. You should try bamboo. I feel like that's a very I, and then it would just be like a terrible combination of like bolted bamboo <laughs> and like poisonous snake root because i hear <laughs> just, that my brother could not get rid of like bamboo in his it's yard. really hard that stuff really it's like very invasive yeah you have to like pour some sort of like acid or poison yeah, on it it still doesn't good. necessarily die it's just like there forever so that would be an interesting war they could fence they could, they could fence yes. it out. It's totally right. <laughs> and yes. I bring it back. Oh, don't um, come to my house expecting food. <laughs> Actually, in Rhode Island, um, in Rhode Island, there's like a lot of really nice farms. And so there's like a farm that delivers like 
nice produce to our house. Oh, and amazing. So it really doesn't matter that I can't. So you keep trying to grow it, but it's okay because you've, you've found another right, exactly. option. But Hope Springs Eternal. This year I actually did grow a number of very, very, very spicy peppers. But they were so spicy that like nobody would eat them, and we had to get rid of them after my son touched one, and then like touched his like, eye, and it was like hours. Like, like, he wasn't even cut; he just like touched the eye. whatever. It was the worst thing you could do. Oh my it's god, when you touch your eye, and you're like, actually worst places you can touch. But anyway, he fortunately was like an issue. Well, thank you so much, Emily. Um, this is our uh, goodbye story. So you told me that your favorite book is "The Day the Crayons Quit" by Drew Daywall. And that's, we, I love that book too. They have, they're so funny. I'm going to read the quick synopsis just for everyone out there. The Day the Crayons Quit is a children's book about a little boy named Duncan and his box of crayons, which one day decide to go on strike because they're not satisfied with how they're used. Duncan tries to find a way to solve this problem in order to keep his crayons happy and be able to paint again. So tell us why you like this book. It's, it's so fun and is this like, do you guys, are you still reading it? You have a seven-year-old? Yeah, I will still, I will still read. Yeah, we'll still it. read. Um, I will still read, we'll still read occasionally uh, these kind of books. We have kept many of the picture books. Um, I think, so I think a good children's book needs to be like long enough, but not too long. Totally. So it can't be like, you know, it can't, like there are some where really it's like. Yeah, it's like there is you a skip the pages. Length. I totally yeah. understand that. Um, and you know, it's like, but it's like entertaining and funny and I, and not, not like moralistic. Sometimes there's, I don't like the moralistic children's books that much. Like I'm happy to teach my kids morals, but I don't need to like have them conveyed through the, through the book. Um, and I don't know, it's just like, I, that, that's a really fun. It's so funny. It's fun really book. a creative one. Yeah. Actually. But my kids are big now. So we get to read, like the best thing is we get to read stuff that like I liked as a kid. You know, like now we're into like, you know, like the Babysitter's Club. My my seven year old oh, really into the Babysitter's Club. So, so now I get to read the Babysitter's Club out loud. It's like a dream. I love Babysitter's Club so much, actually. Yes. Um, my mom went to Smith College and um, Anne M. Martin, who, who wrote those Are books, sure? um, she went there. And so when I was a little kid, I wrote her a fan letter and she wrote back and she was like, say hi to your mom. And I'll never forget that because it was like, I'm such yeah, a fan of those books. Um, the best. Well, Emily, you are brilliant and amazing and doing such great work. And everyone needs to give her a follow on Instagram and sign up for her newsletter and read all of her books that are all bestsellers because she's brilliant. Um, thank you so much for all you do. And let me know how we can, you know, support everything else you're doing. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. Of course. We better get back to work, though, because we have some monumental work to do, Emily. True. We got to do it. We got to do it. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Please write us a review if you liked us. Tell us what you think. Follow us on Instagram at monumental.podcast or at Jesse C. Draper and tell us who you want to hear from and how you think we can solve childcare. Also, please give us five stars. <laughs>